An older man in his 50s, who obviously lived a hard life, walks out from the gates of San Quentin Prison. He is a celebrity of sorts at this point. Years of crime and a cool nickname brought fear into the hearts of many, and yet he was known also as the Gentleman Bandit, as he never used foul language except in his now-famous poems. He walks to a carriage that will take him somewhere far from the place he has called home for the last four years. But a crowd of reporters and, well, fans are surrounding him. The noise is ridiculous, with people yelling out all kinds of questions. Mr. Bowles, who I will call Charlie, is smiling from ear to ear. All this attention for a convict? He thinks to himself. He then puts up his hands to quiet the crowd as he begins to speak. Call me Charles Bolton, please, Charles Bolton. Are you going to rob any more stagecoaches? Some reporter yells out to him. Charlie, at this point in time, was almost 60 years old. His eyes had betrayed him at this point in his age, and one of his ears had completely gone deaf. Charlie laughs a hearty, ha, 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 then looks in the direction of the reporter loud enough for everyone to hear, says, I'm through with crime. With that, he got into a carriage and went on his way. For some, that would be the end of the story of Black Bart, as soon after this, he fell off the face of the earth, never to be heard from or seen again. In this episode of Ricky's Historical Tidbits, I will tell you all about the notorious bandit, Black Bart. This is Ricky's Historical Tidbits Podcast, and this is Ricky Mortensen. Let's go look at Charlie's early life and how a good old farm boy from New York came to be one of the most notorious bandits ever known in the Wild West. Not a whole lot is known about the, his backstory, but it's important, so let's go over it real quick. Charlie was one of ten kids, was born in England, and came to America as a toddler. His dad bought a farm over in New York, and that is where Charlie grew up. Soon enough, Charlie was 20 years old, and then it happened. Gold! 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 Word of gold spreads all over the country, and this sparked one of the greatest migrations of people in this country, from the eastern states to the unknown western territories. Charlie and his cousin David headed west to go make it rich. They mined on the North Fork of the American River, but by 1852, they both said, forget this, it sucks, and went back home. As soon as they got home, one of Charlie's brothers, Robert, said he wanted to go try too. So once again, they made their way back to California. Soon after arriving, both David and Robert got sick and died, leaving Charlie all on his own. He stayed two more years, saving up enough money to get the heck out of California, and when he could, he did. For some reason, this is when he changed the spelling of his last name from Bowles, B-O-W-E-L-S, to Bowles, B-O-L-E-S. Pretty soon after getting back home, Charlie got hitched and moved with his wife to Illinois, where they started a family farm. Life was pretty good then. Just living out a quiet life, plowing fields, feeding the animals. But this was more of a calm 
before the storm. Because in 10 years, Charlie would be charging across the field fighting against the Confederate Army. His time in the war was also short because he almost died at the Battle of Vicksburg. Vicksburg was a Confederate stronghold in Mississippi, which controlled a good chunk of the Mississippi River. General Grant had the Union Army come in and basically take over, but it took about 47 days to do so. Once they did, they pretty much cut off a good piece of the Confederates' uh, trade route. At some point in that siege, uh, Charlie got a nasty wound right in the gut and almost died. He somehow survived and was somewhat healed up and was back out fighting as soon as he possibly could. Then he got hurt again in the Battle of Dallas, which was part of the Battle of Atlanta, which had a similar goal of taking over the supply line, but this time it was rail, not river. It was headed by General Sherman. Uh, Charlie healed up from that and went on with General Sherman to be one of the 60,000 men that took part in Sherman's march to the sea, which at the end of that, he was honorably discharged as a first lieutenant. Sherman's march to the sea was when the Union Army went from Atlanta, Georgia, after taking over Atlanta, to Savannah, which is about 300 miles. Um, they marched through and basically destroyed everything they saw, which is known as scorched earth warfare. Once he got out of the war, he went back to his wife and kids in Illinois, moving them to Iowa, to another farm. But by now, the simple life was just too dang boring for Mr. Bowles. So he said toodaloo to his family again and went alone to Montana. There, he met a guy from Missouri and they teamed up on a mining claim over by Butte, Montana. They were doing pretty good over there. He seemed to really enjoy it, much better than the mining in California. This type of mining he did, and this is a kind of important part of the story, was by using big, long troughs, 12 foot by uh, about 10 inches deep. There would be something like a sieve at the end to keep the rocks and stuff from getting through and only letting in sand and gold, essentially. The main thing that made or broke this kind of mining was water. And you need a nice stream of water to mine like that. One day, some guys that happened to have some kind of connection with Wells Fargo uh, came over and said, Hey, we want to buy this mine. And Charlie said, No, sir, I, I like this mine. Thank you very much. So then these Wells Fargo guys went and bought a piece of land upriver and blocked the water from going down to the mine, which put Charlie and his friend out of business, and they had to abandon it. Until then, Charlie was doing so good he had planned to go back to his family. But that was all over now. Have you ever heard of dime novels? Dime novels are sort of like comic books or reader's digest stories. Some would be long, some would be short. Typically, they would first be written in a newspaper, since a newspaper back then was like the town's Facebook group or Twitter page. Some dime novels were more popular than others, and some had a lasting impact. You ever heard the story about when Orson Welles did the War of the Worlds on the radio, and some people thought that that was actually going on? Sometimes the dime novels would be told orally so often that eventually you didn't know what was fiction and what was real life. Why am I telling you this? There was a very short dime novel back in the early 1870s that the Sacramento Union put out called The Case of Summerfield. 
It was loosely based on Captain Ingram, who was the head honcho of the Ingram Rangers, which you can learn about in my episode uh, called Sherlock Holmes of the West. The story was about a madman named Summerfield. He was basically a mad scientist who had discovered a way to blow up the Earth. He then went to a man who he told his plan, proved he could do it, and asked for $1 million or he would destroy the planet. Then over at a small lake somewhere near San Francisco, he showed a large group of elites that by adding in what he had in a vial, he could burn water to nothing. And within 15 minutes, that lake was totally emptied of water. Quickly, they scrambled to get $1 million without making it too big of a fuss because he could easily be robbed and then the secret weapon would be out on the loose and that would be really bad. Then... After much talk, a conspiracy came about to murder Summerfield. That way, the secret dies with him. And it came to pass that they threw him off a train where he fell to his death over a cliff. But then, a man named Bartholomew Graham, known to many as Black Bart, apparently had robbed the body of Summerfield, which meant he now had the vial that could destroy the earth. The governor put out a warrant for his arrest and reward of $10,000. This is what it said. He is 5 feet 10 inches and a half in height, thick set, has a mustache sprinkled with gray, grizzled hair, clear blue eyes, walks stooping, and served in the late Civil War under Price and Quantrell in the Confederate Army. He may be lurking in some of the mining camps near the foothills, as he was a Washoe teamster during the Comstock excitement. The above reward will be paid for him, dead or alive, as he possessed himself an important secret by robbing the body of the late Gregory Summerfield. The story then goes on to talk more about who this Black Bart was known for. The Bullion Bend robbery, which in reality was run by Captain Ingram, as I said, but in this story it's Black Bart a stagecoach robber, who had a thing against Wells Fargo. He was a nasty, evil man and knew what the vial would do. Then the story simply ends, leaving the reader to assume that this Black Bart guy was still on the loose. Keep that in your mind, and let's go back to real life. At this point in time, our friend Charlie here is now about 46 years old. He's 5 feet 8 inches tall. He's got a big bushy mustache bluish-gray eyes. He's a miner and a Civil War veteran. It's now the mid-1870s now, and he is in California over in Calavera's Angels Camp area. You know, where the jumping frog is. Well, there's another town nearby called Copperopolis. Our buddy Charlie has apparently decided to get back at Wells Fargo for ruining his mine back in Montana by robbing them and then living his life on their dime. He wears a linen duster and then he puts a flower sack on his head with two eye holes so that he could see, then puts a bowler hat on top of that. He holds a shotgun and has a rifle on his back. On Milton Road, where he is, is a good-sized rock that he hides behind. Soon, a stagecoach starts down the road, and when they get close enough, Charlie jumps out in front of the driver and yells for the driver to throw down the strongbox, which holds the money. The driver stares down Charlie, and then Charlie yells out, If he dares to shoot, give him a solid volley, boys! 
The driver then looks around for the other guys and sees barrels pointing out from all around him in the bushes. He gets up and then throws down the strongbox to Charlie. Charlie then starts to go through it when a woman on the stage says he can have what's in her purse and throws the purse at him. Charlie walks up over to the lady, hands her back her purse, and tells her, no, he just wants the Wells Fargo stuff. Charlie then took what gold he wanted and walked off. The driver waits for the other guys to leave too, before he would get down and grab what was left and go back into town, but for some reason the other guys weren't leaving. Finally, after a few minutes, he realizes there are no men hiding in the bushes, just sticks that Charlie had stuck in there to look like it in the heat of the moment. Months later, Charlie robs another stagecoach, using the same idea of the guns in the bushes, once again taking only the Wells Fargo stuff. Fast forward a little to 1877, and Charlie robs his fourth stage, but this time he left a poem, the first of two that he is now famous for. I've labored long and hard for bread, for honor and for riches. But on my corns too long you've tread, you fine-haired sons of bitches. This is why the backstory is so important to understand our good friend Charlie. He was a hard-working man, and then fought honorably in the Civil War for the Union, and then worked hard in the mine until the suits from Wells Fargo screwed him over. They messed with the wrong man. At the bottom of his poem, he signed it Black Bart, the P-08. Now, that dime novel I told you about, it comes into play here. Charlie liked that story, and the description pretty much fit him, so he took on that persona so nobody would mess with him. And I read in my research a lot of confusion on why he also says the P-08 at the very end. In the story, the mad scientist's secret is potassium. And in the showing of his plan, he gives a short description of water being eight parts oxygen and one part hydrogen. This is true, by the way. We think of H2O, but um, that's in terms of volume. In terms of mass, it's a ratio of eight to one. In the story, when the scientist puts potassium in water, it explodes and the water is gone. The reason Charlie puts Black Bart, the PO8, was to play off the character in the story and toy with uh, people's emotions, blending fantasy with reality, which then would make the common person believe the story was not just a story. P equals potassium, O8, water. In saying that he is Black Bart, then mentioning PO8, he is using that story even further, saying that he has the potassium and knows the secret of what happens when it touches water, so you better not mess with him. Maybe some of you are confused at this point. P is not the symbol for potassium in the periodic table. It's K. But Mendeleev didn't create the periodic table until 1869, which means potassium as the letter K was not common knowledge in 1877. It makes perfect sense to believe P meant potassium. For example, I still say Pluto is a planet. Though the International Astronomical Union in 2006 
changed the definition of a planet, reclassifying Pluto as a dwarf planet, not a normal planet. So now instead of nine planets in the solar system, there are only eight. And I know plenty of people don't even know that that got changed. Maybe even you. Did you just learn that just now? That's why I believe P, in this context, meant potassium. The next year, Charlie robbed another stage and left his second and last poem. Here I lay me down to sleep To await the coming morrow Perhaps success Perhaps defeat And everlasting sorrow I've labored long and hard for bread For honor and for riches But on my corns too long you've tread you fine-haired sons of bitches. Let come what will. I'll try it on. My condition can't be worse. And if there's money in that box, tis money in my purse. Black Bart, the PO8. Now, there was a man named James Hume. At this point in time, he was an investigator for Wells Fargo. His job was to make sure bandits that robbed Wells Fargo got arrested, tried, convicted. Our friend Charlie was, as they say, a thorn in his side. James Hume was a different kind of detective. I like to say he was the Sherlock Holmes of the Wild West. Back to Charlie. Some things about him. He didn't like horses. Because of this, there wouldn't be any horse tracks to follow. Only footprints, if they could find any. One day they did find some, and they figured that he was either a size 6 or maybe a size 8. Who knows? Charlie didn't rob often either. Months and sometimes even a year would go between his robberies, which made it all the harder to catch him. But sometimes only days between. But another clue was figured out. The way the sacks would be opened, in a T-shape, it was like his signature. One of the funny parts about the Black Bart case was how similar Charlie and investigator Hume looked. So you might ask yourself, where was Charlie when he wasn't robbing Wells Fargo? Charlie lived in San Francisco, going by the name of Charles Bolton. His identity there was a mine owner who didn't have to stay at the mine all the time, just check in once in a while. In San Francisco, Charlie lived the good life, going to plays, restaurants, wearing nice clothes, and living in a nice apartment. He was good friends with a ton of people in the city, including the local police and detectives. Then, when the money got a little light, he went to check on his mind. Eventually, Mr. Hume hired a guy named Harry Morse to work the Black Bart case. Mr. Hume was a little too busy to focus all of his attention on this one case, though it was one of his most irritating cases. Charlie, as he robbed more and more, got a little cocky and said to a driver one time to give his regards to Mr. Hume. Charlie's last robbery is the perfect ending to the story, I think. He went to the same exact place over in Copperopolis to hide behind that same rock and rob a stagecoach coming down the road. But this time, it went differently. First, one of the men on the stagecoach got off a little while down the road. 
to go hunt while the stage made its way down. Second, the box was bolted down so it couldn't be thrown down for Charlie to go through. So Charlie had the driver get down, put rocks in front of the wheels so it wouldn't run off on him, and then Charlie went to work uh, with a hatchet on the box to get it opened. The guy who was hunting happened to be in sight and the driver waved for him to come back, and he did. The driver then grabbed his gun and shot at Charlie two times but missed. The hunter then grabbed the gun back and shot at Charlie as he made a run for it. They ran after him and saw that they had got a piece of him as there was some blood on the mail that was dropped. They went into town and a posse of sheriffs and Wells Fargo agents came and found some evidence. A suitcase, a glasses case, a belt, a razor, three dirty shirt cuffs, some crackers, some sugar, two flour sacks like the one he put over his head, and an old handkerchief. The main thing was the handkerchief. Back in those days, to get your laundry done in the city, you would have to go to a laundry place. You would drop it off and come back when it was ready for you. Laundromats would put a mark, sort of like a barcode, uh, but also kind of like a brand that you would put on cattle on your clothes, so that they knew who to give the clothes back to when they were all done. It also identified who your laundry guy was. The mark on this handkerchief was F.X.0.7. Mr. Hume knew this would be their best bet and focused on this mark. It could be from anywhere, but they happened to be in San Francisco, so they just began searching there. There were 91 laundries in San Francisco, so they started going to one after the other, after the other, going down the list. Finally, one laundryman recognized it and sent the investigators to a tobacco shop where the owner said that that was the mark of his friend Charles Bolton, a mining manager. Now with a name to go by, they searched the records and found his apartment. They put a watch on it, but also checked in to, on the laundry to see if he came back to get his clean clothes. Sure enough, Charlie was walking down the street to the laundry the same day as investigator Morse was there. Mr. Morse then shook hands with Charlie and asked if he was a mining man and asked if he could get some advice on his mine. Then they walked down the street and right into the Wells Fargo office. Mr. Hume was there and they began asking some questions about his mining operation. And pretty quickly, Charlie got nervous. Soon they went to his apartment, searched his things, finding clothes with that laundry mark that matched. Charlie stayed in character, denying everything, and kept saying that he was a regular gentleman who had a mining operation. But then the hunter was brought in and identified Charlie as the man. Then the driver confirmed the voices matched. Charlie eventually caved and decided to plead guilty, but only for one robbery, that very last one. He was tried and sent to San Quentin for six years. In prison, Charlie worked in the hospital mostly as a clerk and moved up to basically being a pharmacist, something he had said he would like to do after he got out of prison. Now this brings us back to where we began. He served four years and got an early release. Reporters asked him if he was going to go back to robbing uh, stages, and he said no. 
he went back to San Francisco, but was still being watched by the Wells Fargo people, and people treated him differently in general. His life as an elite in San Francisco was, was all gone. He wrote a letter to his wife saying he wanted to get away from everybody and disappear. He never went back to her and his kids, though. Today, nobody really knows for sure where he went. There are a few ideas, uh, but nothing's proven. I like the idea that this book, uh, Black Bart, The Search is Over, says, which uh, he went to Marysville, California, and went by the name of Charles Wells, which I just love because Wells Fargo, right? Uh, he shaved his mustache so he wouldn't be recognized so easily and lived the rest of his life as a pharmacist until he died in 1914. He supposedly is buried in the Marysville Cemetery with no name on a tombstone but the number 743. I don't get any money from these recommendations, but if you want to learn more about Black Bart, I recommend these two books. Also, the museum in San Andreas is an absolute must for Black Bart stuff, and it's an awesome museum in general. And you can read the full story of the case of Summerfield on my website. Link is in the description. Black Bart is also one of the miners featured in the Miners on Main scavenger hunt over on Main Street, Placerville. If you find yourself in Placerville, be sure to check out all the shops and all that stuff, have a good time, and do the scavenger hunt. And that's it for this episode. Please let me know in the comments if you agree with me that PO8 was referring to the potassium water combo. Thanks for watching, thank you for listening, and have a wonderful day. Labored long and hard for bread, for honor and for riches. What on my corns too long you've tread? You fine haired sons of bitches. Yo, black ball, PO8. Here I lay me down to sleep To wait the coming morrow Perhaps success, perhaps defeat And everlasting sorrow He's the Black Bart, P.O. Try it once, my conditions can't be worse 
And if there's money in that box, there's money in my purse. He's the black boy, P.O. Bart, P.O.A. He's the Black Bart, P.O.A. 